is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Hey, Allison. You bummed I didn't do anything weird with your name this week. Uh, no, you know, I, I just like the surprise. I don't know what to expect, and that's what I love about it. Surprise. There was no surprise. In this <laughs> week's episode, we're going to talk about the stocks that taught us our biggest investing lessons. And bro's going to interview college savings expert Mark Kantrowitz about financial aid and the Coverdell. And we'll also answer your question about rolling over your 401k. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Well, it's homecoming season, and what better time to ponder the mistakes of our youth, huh, bro? So many, so many. So many. This week, I'm enlisting the help of some fellow fools to recount the stocks that taught them their biggest investing lessons. So first up, we have Chris Hill. You know him as the host of the Motley Fool Money and Market Foolery podcast. The stock that taught me my greatest investing lesson is Ligand Pharmaceuticals. The ticker symbol is LGND. It was early 2003, and Ligand was featured in an annual write-up of stocks that the Motley Fool's investing team had put together. Now, I didn't have any biopharmaceutical stocks in my portfolio, and the guy who recommended it, he was smart, he knew the industry, so I read his report three times, and I bought a couple hundred shares. And within just a few months, the stock price doubled. Also during that time, I started losing sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night, and when I tried to get back to sleep, I found myself thinking about this company because I didn't really understand what they did. It was a real distraction. I was literally losing sleep over a stock that had gone up. That is crazy. So... I sold it, I doubled my money, I paid happily the short-term capital gains taxes just so I could be rid of it. And in the nearly 20 years since then, I have only bought shares of businesses that I understand. From time to time, I talk about what I call the sleep factor. Ligand Pharmaceuticals is the stock that taught me that lesson. I still lose sleep now and then, but never because of my portfolio. Next up, we turn to Emily Flippin. She's an analyst here at The Motley Fool and also a host of the Industry Focus podcast. The stock that taught me my greatest investing lesson was actually the last stock that I sold, which was Best Buy. I had been a shareholder of Best Buy for a number of years, but I was never really quite sure why I had bought it in the first place. I guess I, I, I heard about it. I was a customer, so I liked it. Um, so, after holding this stock for a number of years, I, I looked at my brokerage account one day and I saw that its share price has increased something like over 200%. And I thought to myself, you know, well, this is probably the top, right? So I sold it. And I remember in pretty short form thereafter, the stock dropped nearly 30 or 40%. And I remember feeling like I had just made a really good decision. Although again, I really wasn't quite sure why. Um, however, since I sold, Best Buy has actually outperformed the market um, again over the long term, increasing another 100%. And I remember reflecting on that and thinking, what can I learn from this experience? And the lesson isn't to never sell, although I certainly would have been better off if I hadn't. Uh, the lesson was to just always have a thesis for why you buy a business in the first place. I had no thesis for Best Buy before I bought it. So I wasn't sure what I was looking for when I was determining if the business was succeeding or failing. And if I had, I would have been able to tell that Best Buy wasn't overvalued, but rather that its business was just doing exactly what it had set out to do, and it was doing it really well. 
And finally, we have Asit Sharma. He's an analyst at The Motley Fool, and he's going to share the stock that taught him one of his biggest investing lessons. Michael Jordan understood better than most that the human brain is wired to create its own narrative from sensory inputs at any given moment, even if that narrative doesn't correspond to the reality that's on the ground. There's some great videos on YouTube of Jordan with his ball fakes in which he stands stock still in many cases and the world's greatest athletes are running clear by him or stumbling backwards or even standing toe-to-toe, bewildered, while he's flipping the ball nonchalantly toward the basket. I just find that so interesting. And it reminds me of my own bewilderment with Microsoft, which has happened to me time and again over the years. This is the stock that's taught me my greatest investing lesson. And that lesson is, when you find a company with superior products and a dominant market position, helmed by a visionary CEO and leadership team with huge balance sheet resources, that company can grow for a lot longer and at a faster rate than your brain thinks it's reasonable or plausible or possible. I've watched Microsoft, especially since Satya Nadella took over as CEO, turn into a juggernaut I've profited from the shares, but then sold them thinking, this can't go on. How much bigger can Microsoft get? How many years can it keep growing at this rate? And the answer is many more than I can conceive of. So the moral of this story is don't be like me. When you find that company that exhibits these characteristics, don't get faked out. All right, bro. Now it's your turn. Do you have a stock that taught you a great investing lesson? I do. And it didn't just teach me a lesson. It actually is tied to uh, one of the great stories of Motley Fool history. And that is back in 1999, Tom and David were actually on The View giving some stock advice to Lisa Ling, who was on the show at the time. This is, I think, June of 1999. uh, And she said, I wanted to get better with my money. And Tom said, okay, what's a service or product you use? And she said, Starbucks, go there every day. So they recommended Starbucks. Well, they came back on the show, I think it was like six to eight weeks later, and Starbucks was down and Lisa was not happy. Uh, And they said, you know, the overall market is down. That's probably why it's down. What they didn't talk about was (laughs) some funny things going on with Starbucks. Starbucks at the time was thinking about becoming a lifestyle brand. They were going to start selling frying pans, towels, sofas, and credenzas. Um, uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO of the company at the time, said that... uh, They'd create, quote, a premier lifestyle portal on the internet and saying that the Starbucks website would be, would, it would offer, quote, a feeling of romance or relaxation. Uh, and the market didn't <laughs> like that, so the stock went down. A very uh, romantic frying pan. Hello. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so Tom said to Lisa Ling, listen, it's just a few months. We're investors for the long term. See where it is in five years. If it's not up in five years, you can kill us. Well, she didn't have them back on the show. But five years later, the stock, was up. And I don't know if she held on to her stock, but if she did, she would have earned more than 2,000% since 1999 compared to over 200% for the S&P 500. Now, I didn't get into Starbucks as early as Lisa Ling. I got in at the when the market collapsed in 2008. I paid about twice of what she did, but I still did very well. The lessons being, I do think the whole buy what you know when it comes to investing can be a little overstated, but it's a great place to start. And if you start there, you start with already some sort of 
knowledge you already have about the company, about the service, why it's appealing, and it might lead you to make a good investment. The other lesson there, of course, is that Starbucks has made mistakes. You know, becoming a lifestyle brand and a lifestyle portal on the internet didn't work out so well. But that's okay. No company is going to be perfect. In fact, I like that they were trying something new and different. Um, but as long as it's a solid company, you hold on for the long term, you're going to do okay. Well, for me, I've told my Rackspace story before, but usually I've told it in the context of the cloud. It was a time you know, around 2011 when all anyone could talk about was the cloud and how we were supposed to invest in the cloud and therefore Rackspace. And I was one of those people who heard people say the cloud over and over again and was like, okay, I'm going to invest in Rackspace. So you could argue that mine's a story of invest in what you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's probably a better lesson that I learned. And that's because I was lucky enough to be working at The Motley Fool at the time. And one of the co-founders, I think it was Pat Condon, he came to our office and was actually interviewed in front of the whole company. So that also was one of the perks of working at The Motley Fool is you'd have people come in all the time to talk to you about their company, or maybe it's the Aflac doc for whatever reason, or the Tybo guy came and talked to us. I mean, And so... At one point, we even had the founder of Five Guys come. Remember that? And he was, man, he was really upset when they diversified outside of French fries and burgers. Remember? Yes. I mean, he was, oh, whole, he was dug in. Yes. He was not very happy with the time it took to make shakes, but he had to give in and, and offer shakes. I remember him also saying that he had a lot of fun in college, but generally a college degree isn't worth very much. So yeah. that, that was an interesting takeaway. Yeah. So we had people coming in like that all the time. And so it, in this case, it was the co- one of the co-founders of Rackspace, Pat Condon. And I thought, well, I own Rackspace. I should, totally, I should go hear what this guy has to say. And again, my knowledge of the cloud was just people yelling the cloud over and over again. Um and near me. And so as he was talking, um, he just, you could tell that he was just a man who had perhaps seen enough and was not sure what direction to go because someone asked him, you know, what you're doing, how you make your money is something that Amazon gives away for free. And you could tell that he was like, yeah, we got to figure that out. But he said it in such a way that told me that he just did not know how they were going to figure it out. And I remember at the time thinking like, wow, maybe I shouldn't own Rackspace. But instead of listening to my gut, I held on to it. And eventually um, it did get bought out by another company. But my takeaway from that one is, is the leadership really, truly excited to talk about what it is that they're doing at the company? Or, Or can you tell that they're just like, Oh, man, I don't know. The cloud. The cloud, man, is killing us. All right, but that's enough from us on the show. I want to hear from our listeners. Do you have a stock that taught you a great investing story? Send it our way to answers at fool.com and maybe we'll share it on the show. Yes, I wish that we could sit back on the bed in some hotel and listen to the stories we could tell. Mollyful readers and listeners tend to like investing in individual stocks, and many who are parents or grandparents are disappointed when they learn that the investment choices within 529 college saving plans are pretty much limited to mutual funds. But don't despair, fools. Stocks can be bought within a Coverdell education savings account. Here to talk about the benefits and drawbacks of these accounts, as well as the financial aid process, is Mark Kantrowitz, a college savings expert and the author of several books, including the bestseller, How to Appeal for More College Financial Aid. And since we're talking about college, I'll point out that Mark has a couple of bachelor's degrees from MIT and a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon. So he's a pretty sharp fellow. Mark, welcome to Motley Full Answers. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the Coverdell by asking you to give us the basics. 
So the Coverdell Education Savings Account, it used to be known as the Education IRA, includes a lot more flexible investment options than a 529 plan. You can invest in individual stocks and bonds. There is, however, an annual contribution limit of $2,000 from all sources, whereas the 529 plan is effectively unlimited, though there is the annual gift tax exclusion as a potentially limiting contributions. Um, it also uh, was originally focused on K-12 as opposed to college. So it has a broader set of qualified uh, elementary and secondary school expenses, such as tuition, tutoring, uniforms, um, whereas the 529 plans only recently added uh, tuition, but it's capped at $10,000 per year. Um, both Coverdell education savings accounts and 529 plans uh, have the same set of uh, qualified higher education expenses. Um, though 529 plans also allow you to use the 529 plan to repay up to $10,000 of student loan debt, something that the Coverdell education savings account does not have. Uh, there are age limits in the Coverdell. The contributions must end when the beneficiary reaches age 18 and distributions must occur uh, before the beneficiary reaches age 30, unless the beneficiary is a special needs beneficiary. And you can roll over money from a Coverdell education savings account to a 529 plan account, but not vice versa. So when you look at where college savings is these days, according to at least educationdata.org, of all the money saved for college, there's about 30% in 529 college savings plans, about 8% in 529 prepaid plans, only 2% in the Coverdell. I have some thoughts on why that is, but what do you think are the reasons? Why is the Coverdell not really caught on the way 529s have? I, I think the, the contribution limits are a big part. Uh, and if you were to contribute $2,000 uh, from birth through age 17, that's a maximum of $34,000 of contributions, uh, and people perceive that as not being enough, even though the average total amount saved for college I mean, works out to be a little bit less than that. I mean, and people should be saving more, but they don't save enough. I would say another reason probably is that there are the income limits on the Coverdell. I mean, it begins to phase out at a modified adjusted gross income of 95000 if you're single, up to 110,000, and then 190,000. If you're married, file jointly, phasing out completely at 220,000. However, there is a way around that, isn't it? I mean, the people who earn that much don't have to be the people who contribute to the accounts. Yeah, they can give the money to their child and have the child uh, contribute the money to the account. But uh, all contributors have to be under that phase out um, if they want to give money to the account. Otherwise, they have to find a proxy. So let's say you're, you earn above that, you give the money to the kid, the kid puts the money in the account. Now, when it comes to financial aid, the general rule of thumb is, you know, anything that is owned by the parent is not as harmful as anything that's owned by the child. Is that the same case here with the Coverdell? Or does the Coverdell still get that favorable treatment, even though it was the kid who put the money in the account? Right. So a Coverdell education savings account a prepaid tuition plan account and a 529 plan account have the same impact on financial aid, which is if the account is owned by the parent, it's reported as a parent asset. 
if the account is a custodial account that's owned by the child, or the child's both the beneficiary and the account owner, it's still treated as a parent asset if the child is a dependent student. So in the case of a Coverdell, it's going to be reported as a parent asset on the free application for federal student aid or FAFSA form uh, and not as a student asset. And that has a big impact. I mean, the um, student assets like in an UGMA or UGMA account are going to reduce aid eligibility by a fifth of the asset value, 20%. Whereas if it's in the parent's name, it's on a bracketed scale with a top bracket of 5.64%. So it is generally definitely better to have money either owned by the parents or in one of these 529 or Coverdell savings accounts. Yeah, these specialized college savings account are treated as a parent asset if it's a dependent student. I also point out that from a practical matter, there's just not that many people who offer the Coverdell anymore. I mean, I think these days, if you're looking for a discount broker where you can buy stocks, it's pretty much Schwab, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade. There are some mutual funds that let you do it. You just have to pay attention to the cost. Fidelity doesn't offer it anymore. Vanguard got out of the business. Do you expect that to be a problem? Do you think that, you know, in general, these people are going to get out of the business and not offer the Coverdale anymore? I, I think that there will still be a few companies providing them, but for the most part, there just isn't enough of a market for it to be worthwhile for these companies to pursue it. The Also, the long-term trend is to phase out the Coverdale and replace it with the 529 plan. And the intention uh, was to completely eliminate it and uh, take the best benefits of the Coverdell Education Savings Account and roll them into the 529 plan. They didn't do that. That's why we now have the ability to do $10,000 of tuition in a 529 plan, whereas the Coverdell was unlimited. They, they had to put a cap in and they didn't add the other qualified expenses, but eventually they will. And then uh, existing investors in Coverdells will be grandfathered in but uh, in, in many ways, the 529 plan is a superior way of saving for college and now also for uh, K to 12. So I'll just make one final point on this and we'll move on. And that is this doesn't have to be an either or situation, right? I mean, you can contribute to the Coverdale up to the 2000 and then do the 529 if you have additional savings, correct? Correct. Excellent. All right, so let's move on from the Coverdell to financial aid. Um, parents can now start filling out the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid as of October 1st. Uh, what are some strategies for getting the most aid? Okay, so income on the FAFSA is based on two-year-old information, often called the prior, prior year. So for the 2022-23 FAFSA, which families just started uh, filing, it's based on 2020 income. Uh, and the assets are as of the date the FAFSA is filed. So this suggests a few ways to try to improve your aid eligibility. Um, don't artificially increase your income during that prior prior year. So I mean, if you're going to realize capital gains, offset them with capital losses. In fact, you can go reduce and have up to negative uh, $3,000 so that you, if your losses exceed your capital gains to reduce your adjusted gross income and thereby increase your eligibility by about $1,000 if you have $3,000 of losses. Um, you can uh, avoid taking distributions from retirement plans. 
contributions to retirement plans do get added back in as untaxed income, but the assets in that retirement plan are not reported on the FAFSA. Um, you can also um, use your assets to pay down debt. You don't really get any credit for having debt on the FAFSA, but money in your bank is going to hurt you. So you can use that money in the bank to pay down your mortgage, pay off auto loans, pay off your credit cards. And not only is that good financial planning sense, and you avoid paying a higher rate of interest, but you're also going to improve your aid eligibility from a federal student aid perspective. One kind of rule of thumb I've come across is that often aid is distributed on a first come first serve basis. So you should submit the FAFSA as soon as possible. Is that generally true? That's correct. There are several different types of aid that are awarded um, in a limited fashion. So uh, there are 15 states that award their financial aid, their grants on a first come first serve basis until the money runs out. So people who file the FAFSA sooner can't more grants on average than people file it later. Uh, there are certain types of federal student aid like federal work study funds, and federal supplemental educational opportunity grants that are awarded um, a fixed allocation to each college. And when that money is fully awarded, there's no more money available. Uh, and then finally, many colleges have preferred financial aid deadlines and regular financial aid deadlines. And obviously there's more money available the sooner you apply. As suggested by the title of one of your books, an aid package from college may not be their final offer. According to a report from Sally May, 71% of families who received a financial aid offer from a college and appealed for more aid were successful. So what are some strategies for trying to get more? Right. So everyone who is, whose financial circumstances are affected um, in any kind of slightly unusual way should file an appeal. And that can include changes from that prior prior year to the present, like uh, 2020 was in the middle of the pandemic, maybe you lost your job and you still don't have a job. So pay cuts and uh, job loss are actually the most common uh, basis for an appeal and the most likely to be approved. Um, but also anything that differentiates your family's financial circumstances from the typical family. And that could be maybe you have siblings uh, for whom you're paying private K to 12 tuition or maybe you have high unreimbursed medical expenses, or you have high dependent care costs for a special needs child or an elderly parent. Anything that's at all a little bit unusual, you can, uh, it can be the basis for an appeal. Uh, and the process is relatively straightforward. You contact the college financial aid office to ask about their process. Uh, and usually they'll tell you to write a letter summarizing the special circumstances. They might have a form that you download from their website that they want you to complete. And then you include copies of documentation of these special circumstances, including uh, what the financial impact was on your family, like a copy of your job layoff notice or a copy of a letter showing recent receipt of unemployment benefits. The college then decides whether or not this uh, special circumstance merits an adjustment and then they implement it by making changes to the data elements on the FAFSA, like your income's lower, they substitute the new income for the old income, and they also make an adjustment to the taxes. Uh, or they choose any 12-month period, including an estimate of your income during the 
upcoming award year, and they use that with the financial aid formula, which generates a new expected family contribution figure, which then generates a new financial need figure, which then generates a new financial aid package. So it's very formulaic other than deciding whether or not your special circumstances uh, justify an adjustment to the data elements on the FAFSA. So our final question, I'm just curious, is there anything else about saving for or paying for college that you think more parents and grandparents should know about? Well, the sooner you start saving, the better off you're going to be. And if you start saving from birth, about a third of your college savings goal will come from the earnings. Whereas if you wait until the child enters high school, it's less than 10%. And you'd need to save six times as much to reach the same college savings goal. And so it's never too late to start saving because every dollar you save is a dollar less you're going to have to borrow. But um, you can even continue saving while the child's in college. There are 34 states and the District of Columbia that offer a state income tax break based on your contributions to the state's 529 plan. And you can, in most of these states, you can claim that state income tax deduction or tax credit uh, even if you turn around the next day and you take that distribution to pay for your college costs. So that's a way of getting a lot, like the equivalent of a discount on tuition. Again, our guest has been Mark Kantrowitz, the author of hundreds of articles about saving for college, as well as several books, including How to Appeal for More College Financial Aid. Mark, thanks for joining us on Mollyful Answers. Thank you for having me. It's time for Answers Answers, and this week's question comes from Chris. I have almost $100,000 in my 401k, and although I got a very late start, my Roth IRA has $35,000, thanks to the excellent advice of The Motley Fool. Oh, that's nice. Specifically, the Stock Advisor Service. In August, I left the job that the 401k was built through and started a new job. I'm currently 54 years old and plan on working full-time for another 10 years. I also draw retirement from my service in the U.S. Air Force. My question is this, do I need to move my existing 401k into the plan with my new employer or are there other options? Well, Chris, I'm very glad to hear that you're doing well with the recommendations from Stock Advisor. Excellent news. As for your question, when you leave your employer, you have really up to four options when it comes to your old 401k account. Number one, just cash it out. Of course, this is the worst choice because it means you'll pay taxes and a 10% penalty if you're not 59 and a half or 55 in some cases. Uh, but worst of all, you'll have compromised your ability to retire. Despite all those bad consequences, approximately a third of job switchers cash out their 401ks. Oof. Your second choice, leave it with the former employer if you're allowed. But if you have more than $5,000 invested in your 401k, as Chris does, then most employers will kind of allow you to stay put. Uh, and you may want to do this if your old plan has excellent investment choices at rock bottom prices. However, in some cases, you may end up paying more because employers cover some costs that they might not cover for ex-employees. Also, once you're no longer an employee, you can't make any additional contributions or take out any loans from the 401k. Now, if you have less than $1,000 in your old 401k, you may just get sent a check and you have to roll that over to your new plan or an IRA within 60 days, or it's considered a distribution and it may be taxed and penalized. If it's between $1,000 and $5,000 and the company doesn't want you in the plan anymore, they must roll it over to an IRA. However, they're going to choose the IRA provider and how the money's invested, which is not ideal. So this brings us to choice number three, transfer your old account to your new employer. 
Now, you may have to wait a bit for this since uh, some employers don't allow new employees to sign up for the 401k on day one. But once you're eligible, you can merge your 401k, so to speak, into the new plan, assuming that the new plan allows it. Why would you do this? Well, again, it might be because the plan has outstanding low-cost investment choices. Uh, and, and frankly, you may just want to keep all your, you know, your number of accounts to a minimum. You want to have all your work-sponsored retirement money in one place. Uh, another good thing to know is that you can generally transfer money out that you have rolled in at any time, depending on the rules of the plan. So you can change your mind later. And now we get to the fourth choice, transfer it to an IRA. Now, since Chris says he's investing along with our stock advisor service, this means he likes to pick individual stocks. So transferring the money to an IRA with a discount broker may be his best choice, since the majority of 401ks do not allow you to invest in individual stocks. And once the money's in the IRA, he really can invest in just about anything offered by the broker. Stocks, bonds, CDs, ETFs, thousands of mutual funds. And really because of this flexibility, transferring an old 401k to an IRA is likely the best choice for most Motley Fool readers and listeners. Okay, so those are the four choices. Now, I do want to leave you with a word of advice about moving the money. If at all possible, do a trustee-to-trustee transfer, also called a direct rollover. In other words, you want the money moved directly from one institution to the other without you touching it. It's easier on you and it reduces the chances of any mistakes. If a check gets sent to you, as I said earlier, you have to get that money into a 401k or an IRA as soon as possible. Also, depending on how your old 401k handled this, they may have withheld 20% of your account value, which then gets sent to the IRS. And you have to make up that 20% when you move your money to a new account. You'll likely get it back when you file taxes. But if you don't make up that difference, the 20% is considered a distribution and, once again, maybe taxed and penalized. So generally, start with the institution to which you're moving the money and give them a call. They likely have a whole department dedicated to accepting rollovers, which, of course, is a great source of new business for them. And they should be able to walk you through the process. Not sure which discount broker to choose? Well, head on over to The Ascent, a Motley Fool website that reviews brokers, as well as banks, lenders, credit cards, and other financial service providers. Oh, that's the show. It's edited snarkily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Please send us your stories about a stock that taught you one of your biggest investing lessons. All right. Well, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.